The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world. Walking off this show, I'm Jake Mintz, that's Jordan Schusterman, but don't worry, that won't happen until the end. Until the 11th inning of this podcast, Jake, uh, you just witnessed one of the great World Series games of all time. I would say, context aside, this was in a lot of ways, a perfect baseball game. Like, I don't yeah. really know what this game was missing. <laughs> like, truly, this had everything you could possibly want in any baseball game, let alone Game 1 of the World Series. And that's what we're going to do on this Saturday morning. We are going to recap Game 1 as the Rangers win 6-5. to five. You were in the building. You were under the roof. And uh, you, can, you can certainly, but let me tell you, this was a hell of a television event as well. And I'm so glad I tuned in, you know, I was like, eh, is it worth it? Should I watch Magic Blazers, NBA's back? And then I decided to watch this, thankfully. Now, I'm also thankful that you watched it, Jordan, because what I have learned about this postseason is that there are certain things that I miss by being there and certain things that you miss by not being there. And so us being friends allows us to provide the total perspective. That's true. And obviously, I would rather be there with you. For those of you who haven't <laughs> yeah. picked up on it, I have not been traveling this month, uh, which is unfortunate, but we don't have to get into that. Uh, the point is... Buy us a, is, but buy us a beer sometime. Yeah, that's fine. You know, if you really want to know, that's fine. But either way, the point is, um, I uh, this was a hell of a game. And we're going to get into it. Let's why, why, why? We don't even have to set the stage. I mean, let's just get right into it. Unless you want to talk about George Bush's first pitch, I think we should get to the actual first pitch. The the best part about George Bush's first pitch is that he avoided contact. True. No one's hitting that. That's the type of pitch that Miguel Castro should have thrown. If, yeah. At least Garcia. If, if we're skipping to the last pitch, it should have looked a lot more like the first pitch. The first but pitch. But we have a long way to go <laughs> until we get there. Let's begin. In the first inning, uh, you know, normally when we do these postseason recasts, I'm like, ah, do we really got to go play by play? In this case, absolutely, because this game was such a, a a journey, and the feelings that we were feeling at different stages of this game were so wildly volatile and, and fun and crazy. So I think we, we might as well just get right into it. We have Nathan Evaldi, we have Zach Gallen, and here we go. So I'm going to group the top of the first and, and the um, top of the second together. If okay. you don't mind. Sure. 
where Nathan Eovaldi looks untouchable. Untouchable. He looks as good as we have seen him in quite some time. He's throwing 96 miles an hour. At the end of the regular season, he was throwing 94 miles an hour. I know that is only a two-mile-an-hour gap. But listen, my friends, that is an enormous jump in such a short amount of time, especially to sustain. The splitter in the first two innings was just rolling off a table. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it was like, oh, right. Like the Arizona Diamondbacks offense isn't that good. And Nathan Eovaldi is that good Mm -hmm. when he's like this. And we're probably just going to... You know, stroll to a seven to zero World Series game one final. Especially because the Rangers put up two quick runs in the bottom of the first. Gallon is still looking shaky. The command is not quite there. Seeger walks. Carter, a rocket to right center, almost gets out for a homer. Adolis lines one to left on, I believe it was a three. Yeah, so it gets to three one. And you're like, is this it? Is this going to be the walk? Instead, he smashes a curveball in the bottom of the zone. 116 off the bat, Adolis still rolling. Garver grounds into a double play, so we live with the damage. It's 2-0. But as you mentioned, Eovaldi strikes out a side in the, in the second, and it's just like, uh-oh. Like, if Gallon is not going to settle in here, this this could get ugly. And then there was a version of this series in this game that I sort of envisioned. If Gallon wasn't on and Eovaldi was, it was like, maybe this game isn't going to be very good. But 1-2-3 inning for Gallon in the second. Strikes out Josh Young. And then it's like, okay, well, we're at the bottom of the D-backs order. And Evaldi has struck out four in a row. Like, presumably, he's just going to keep going. Not but quite. Snake's Alive. Yeah, Snake's Alive. That's I don't know if you saw that. I, I, you, see, you see that sign? <laughs> you see those tweets? The Snakes are actually alive. And Alec Thomas singles. Evan Longoria singles. And suddenly, it's like, oh, great. All right, here we go. Never mind. Game on. Geraldo Perdomo. <laughs> said, he's just had a very fascinating postseason. But I've been impressed with him on the whole. He drops down the old sack bunt. And this is when all the people who had been hyping up the D-backs, it's all people who have been talking about, oh, small ball versus, you know, all these all these rich guys trying to hit home runs, but we do it the right way, blah, blah, blah. But in this case, I'm like, hell yeah, you should bunt to have Corbin Carroll with two guys in scoring position. Like, absolutely, you should be bunting. And thankfully, Geraldo Perdomo is pretty good at bunting. This is the other thing, right? Part of the thing that we've seen in baseball now is that guys suck at bunting because they're never practicing it and they because we don't bunt as much anymore, which is fine. But then when you see guys who need to bunt and suck at it, you're like, well, this sucks. Geraldo Perdomo is not one of those guys. And then Corbin Carroll comes to the plate. So the one thing about Corbin Carroll that has always been true, I mean, many things have been true, but a thing about Corbin Carroll that has always been true is that the ball leaps off his bat. It is almost an optical illusion how hard it goes. And when you see him swing in person for the first time, if you're lucky enough to watch him take batting practice, it looks wrong. Like like there's a nose cone or a jet pack on the baseball. And when I wrote the article about his high school career, this was something I got from a lot of people. How does that small dude generate so much pop, right? And this play here in the top of the third inning was very much created by Carroll's freakish ability to drive the baseball. He hits a liner to center field that center fielder Leody Tavares thinks he's going to play on a hop or he takes kind of an aggressive line to it. But Corbin's ball has more carry than anybody would have thought. And it skips past Tavares all the way to the wall. Triple tie game. Yeah. And he's on third in a blink. I think the other thing that was so impressive about this at bat 
is he gets, he swings at a high cutter. He takes a high fastball that was definitely not a strike, but it's called a strike. Now it's 0-2. And what have we already seen so far in this game? The splitter from hell, right? And Eovaldi just, I mean, it's a good pitch. Like if you look at the game, but but against Carroll, the, the margin for error, and this is true, this is a theme for the whole game, is that these hitters are so good that if you miss by the tiniest fraction, you're going to get, you're going to get punished. And for him, I mean, this swing on this splitter who no one else could come remotely close to touching to at this point in the game was so impressive. And to your point, yeah, it just, it just zooms to the center field fence uh, right past Tavares, who's a good outfielder, and he had no idea what to do with it. Yeah, and when he really gets one, Corbin Carroll's balls will curve like a golf shot Mm -hmm. from right to left almost, Mm -hmm. right? Because the way his swing works is he's almost slicing away from the baseball. He's kind of leaving the box and running towards first and and his swing path kind of mirrors that sometimes but he just goes the yeah. ball just goes dude it's so crazy <laughs> it when that ball left the bat i was like oh that's like a little dink that's good <laughs> and, like, that'll get Pew! down <laughs> so, and, then, and then and then as fast as the ball is it's on the center field fence corbin carroll is on third and his speed comes into play on the next at bat because Cattell Marte. Grounds one. So now at this point, the, you know, the game is tied. Still one out. Tell Marte, easy RBI opportunity. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, okay, well, maybe go for the sack fly. That, that'll score him easily. Grounds one to first base. Now, Nathaniel Lowe's playing decently far back. But like most base runners, you would it would make sense to try and throw home. And even in this case, it's like, okay, yeah. It was a very straight straightforward grounder right to Nathaniel Lowe. And he... I guess his arm is not the best, but still he throws a, not a terrible throw uh, home uh, and Jonah Heim grabs it, but Corbin Carroll is there in in a blink and his read on that, again, we're talking about, you know, milliseconds here, the difference between being safe under this tag or kind of around this tag versus not is is the difference. I mean, that's Corbin Carroll being one of the fastest players in the league and uh, the D-backs take a 3-2 lead. Anything else on that specific play? Great play. I mean, he takes the walking lead. They have the angle of it from the overhead shot. And that's, like you said, that's the difference. Yes, the foot speed matters. But the read, in some cases, matters more than the foot speed. Because, like, he's going right at first. Like, as soon as contact is made, he's just jetting home. Mm -hmm. And his momentum is already moving towards home. And so that first step is a lot quicker than it would have been otherwise. Yes. Uh, Moreno strikes out, but Cattell Marte steals second base. The first of four stolen bases in this game for Arizona. The first team since the 1908 Cubs. The 1908 Cubs that to steal four, uh, four bags in game one of the World Series. So that so is that's a, a bad stat. sign. That, that's a bad <laughs> sign, though. That too. Um, anyway, uh, the but then, you know, Moreno strikes out. Walker strikes out. D-backs have a 3-2 to two lead. Bottom of the third. Gallon comes back out, strikes out Tavera, strikes out Semyon. Semyon at this point still struggling hard. Oh, boy. He was really going through it until later in this game. Corey Seager walks again. Corey, uh, Marcus Semyon and Christian Walker should just, like, talk it out. <laughs> These two guys are really just not having a great time. I know Semyon got some redemption later, but... Oof, uh, Christian Walker still really not doing great. Evan Carter doubles um, to uh, move Seager to third. And then Adolis Garcia draws his first walk of the postseason. 
He did it, a six-pitch at bat. Really only one pitch there. He did take a pitch, a very hittable pitch for strike two, but he seemed committed to telling us that we are nerds who care about walks too much. He said, here, here's your walk. And that sets up bases loaded for Mitch Garver. Mitch Garver, fantastic at bat. He draws an RBI walk to tie the game at three. Jonah Heim flies out. And now it is 3-3. And now, again, it's it's game on at this point. Now, both starters clearly had been showing a little bit of shakiness. So now we're wondering, okay, how long are they going to last? And when Tommy Pham leads off the fourth with a home run, now it's like, holy shit, is Gallon going to stay in this game longer than Evaldi? Fam, dude. And again on the splitter. Again on the splitter. Now, this was not as good of a splitter as the one he threw to Carroll or a lot of the ones he had thrown uh, all game. He had a funny moment. This is something that I assume you you didn't see. You know, they're doing these in-game interviews after they hit the home run. I did see this. Okay, yeah. So anything related to Tommy Pham saying words (laughs) You will watch I make sure I, I get that. Okay. So Tommy Pham with Verducci afterwards. Oh, what'd you see? What was your approach? And he basically was just like, you know, Eovaldi's my guy. Like we were, we were boys in Boston last year. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah, I guess they were. <laughs> it's like Tommy Pham was on the Red Sox. Um, and he was just like, yeah, like he's, that splitter is awesome, but he, he gave me a good one. <laughs> that was not my takeaway from that interview. Mine was, they asked about small, small ball, ball versus, and yep, he was yep. versus big ball. And Pham was like, I tried small ball in the series against the Dodgers Wasn't and it didn't work. So I'm going to stick to big ball and try to hit home runs. And that mirrors what I saw from Tommy Pham during batting practice. I was so close to tweeting this and I'm so mad I did it. He was swinging so hard during batting practice and just ripping balls. Like he was obliterating. <laughs> like, Seeing a guy's batting practice before game one of the World Series should not tell you anything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? At that point, there's nothing to glean totally. from what you see. However, when a guy is swinging harder than he needs to in batting practice, it's like, okay, Tommy Pham. Also, like, man is locked it's, it's kind of a, a contrast to Walker because Pham has looked bad in some at-bats, but you know what he's trying to do. Like, he is clearly up there trying to do damage, and he's had two of the biggest home runs for the Diamondbacks. This postseason, whereas Walker, everything looks like feeble. Everything looks like timid and like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing up here. And like, there's no conviction in what he's doing. Whereas Pham, as you see on a swing like this, on a splitter for Mivaldi, giving the Diamondbacks the lead. Now it is four to three. No other runs that inning. No runs in the bottom of the fourth. We go to the top of the fifth where Geraldo Perdomo leads off with a single, steals second base. Mivaldi is still in at this point. He strikes out. Corbin Carroll. Now, this could have been a time where with a deeper bullpen, maybe you would have seen the move to someone earlier, but instead they trusted but him. But having, mm-hmm. they trusted him and having a switch hitter in Cattell Marte means that you, there's no good option. Yes. Yes. Great point. Uh, and so I guess they decided they would rather him swing lefty and instead he, he makes him pay. Uh, Marte sends a double to center field, an RBI double to make it. Five to three. Moreno rounds out. Christian Walker walks the only walk of the game for the Diamondbacks. If there is something that stands out in the box score, 14 strikeouts, one walk for Diamondbacks hitters. Credit to the Texas pitching staff. But that's definitely a ratio that is not especially uh, conducive to success if you are a team in game one of the World Series. Um, so that walk uh, is what ultimately sends Mr. Evaldi out of the game. And here comes Dane Dunning. And the sequence of pitchers here was a little bit interesting because 
The Rangers, for the most part, they're starting pitching for, between Dunning and Montgomery has been so good that they haven't really had to think about the bullpen until the 7th or the 8th. This is the earliest the Evaldi's been knocked out of the game. And so it's like, okay, well, who, who are they going to go to here? Are they going to try to go to Spores and keep it close? But they go to Dunning. He gets out of the inning, and it is 5-3, to three, going to the bottom of the 5th. And this is my first key moment of the game, Jake Mintz. Now, it didn't. At the, if, what, what felt like a key moment of the game. And that was Zach Gallen going back out for the fifth for Seager, Carter, Garcia. Now, I know they mm. end up losing, so it doesn't matter. But like this was the amount of trust here when we've seen Lavello pull his starters earlier. We've seen him say, oh, hell no, you're not facing these guys a third time or even a second time, whatever. For him to go, for Gallen to go back out there at like 88 pitches and get Seager, Carter, Garcia, one, two, three, was I, I think like ultimately this gallon outing was was pretty impressive. I, I thought considering how it began, I I, I was impressed with, with the way Gallon threw it. I felt like he controlled the game a lot better than he had in previous starts. Yeah, he's simply not at his best. Yeah. His fastball command is not great. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of going through it mm-hmm. at certain points. Mm-hmm. But that is the difference between good pitchers and great pitchers is if you don't have your best stuff, are you still going five? Are you still keeping your team in the ball game? And Gallon definitely did that last night. Mm-hmm. We go to the top of the sixth. Uh, Dunning kind of keeps things rolling. Cody Bradford eventually comes in and gets Perdomo uh, to line out with a runner on base. So now we go to the bottom of the sixth, and that is the end of Zach Gallon's day. Here comes Ryan Thompson. Ryan Thompson comes in, gets Garver. Heim walks. Low flies out. Now this was... <laughs> Did you think this was a home run? Because on TV, they like it was a 38 degree launch angle. Like I know sometimes when hitters like kind of pause, it's like you was you, now we're conditioned to assume they're pimping it. But often I read it as he knew he just missed it, and it kind of landed right in sort of the weird cutout. The, the outfield dimensions at Globe Life are totally bizarre, and <laughs> it kind of landed uh, just below the fence. So I know that that was a moment there where it was like holy shit is is low about the homer. And it was just a little bit short. So the Globe Life Field press box is on the moon. Sure. And so it's really difficult to read ball flight yeah. in a situation like that. So I thought it was way gone. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and on TV, I, I definitely got some text thinking that that Lowe had, you know, had tied the game there. Uh, but instead, it is still just five to three. Leoti eventually pops out to the catcher. So and the D-backs. This- yeah. Anything else in, in this inning? Yeah, this is a my first key moment okay. of the game. This is myself in front of the show. Mike Farron have been texting each other key moment of okay. the game at key moments of the game. Yep. And this was my first key moment of the game because Ryan Thompson, as a side-arming right-handed pitcher, facing Leody Tavares, a left-handed hitter with runners on and the top of the order lurking. To me, that felt like a big moment. Mm-hmm. A tough matchup against Tavares, and he gets him to pop out and foul territory to end the inning. Yeah, and clearly there was trust there. I don't know Tavares, you know, switch hitter. Um, also tough to game plan for. I don't know if Tavares has notable splits yeah. in either way. Clearly, even if he was to get on, they would rather Thompson facing Semyon than going to a Mantiply or a Saul Frank at this point, uh, which made sense. But I, no, I, I agree with that, right? There were two runners on at that point, and he was, I guess, the go-ahead run. Uh, at that point, but he gets him to pop out and it is still five to three D backs going to the seven. At which point we have another interesting Texas Rangers pitching decision because at this point, Cody Bradford's in, he gets Carroll, he gets Marte, amazing play from Semyon. And then here comes John Gray. 
John Gray, who had thrown the second most innings on this team this regular season after Dane Dunning for the Rangers. How often does a team in the World Series use their two innings leaders in relief while losing in game one? That, again, very specific sequence, but it just it said a lot about how the Rangers got here, and I thought that was very funny. But hey, credit to John Gray, because John Gray looks pretty good. And, you know, Gabriel Moreno hit, hit, this is really the only ball that Moreno hit hard. He was certainly disappointing last night, over five with three strikeouts. Um, the 23-year-old catcher, you know, batting third in the World Series. Like he he was one that this was the first game where offensively he just really didn't yeah. have it, but this was a good swing. But Garcia tracks it down uh, and keeps the game uh, five to three going to the bottom of the seventh. And here comes Joe Mantiply out of the bullpen. It is clear now that the Arizona Diamondbacks have swapped Joe Mantiply and Andrew Saul Frank mm -hmm. in the who is our left-handed reliever for the top pocket of hitters. But out comes Mantiply, gets Semyon to line out to left. And that's a big out because he does not have the platoon advantage. Seeger strikes out swinging. Evan Carter pops up. And it's like, okay, Joe Mantiply. Yeah. All right. And that's when I felt the Diamondbacks were definitely going to win the baseball game. Mm -hmm. Once they once they got through that, once he gets Seeger, you know, Seeger had battled off some pitches. <laughs> we know he was pretty locked in. He had drawn the walks earlier. But the execution against Seeger there was perfect for Mantiply and uh, keeping that ball down, keeping that sinker kind of low in it enough where Seeger couldn't quite do any damage. And either way, it was still, you know, facing him without any runners on was also huge. Uh, and then Carter, I, I think this will continue to be a theme of this series. And I know Carter had the big double earlier and he, he's, a, he's a, like how they choose to not just on the Arizona side, but will Bruce Bochy continue to let him face lefties late in games because ultimately he's just he just is not very good at it right now so at, at all right this is he's, this is where the inexperience really shows and so there's these moments and there's another one later on where it's like wow I can't believe Carter is still hitting here um when he you know against Kyle Nelson but anyway the point is is I think that's definitely something to to continue to watch we go back to the top of the eighth and this is where John Gray is really making his free agent money strikes out Walker strikes out fam Guriel singles strikes out Thomas that is absolutely massive because, again, you know, when you kind of have that opportunity for your offense against Joe Mantiply that goes nowhere in the top of the seventh or in the bottom of the seventh, you know, you want to kind of maintain. You don't want to lose that at all. You don't want to get too far down. He strikes out three batters in the eighth. And now we go to the gink show, baby. Here comes the gink once again. And for the first time all postseason, it got a little dicey for Mr. Ginkle. Just a The gink. Just a little. The Gink. I have a story this morning on Fox Sports about the Gink. Talked to Mama Gink, Papa Gink. Uh, talked to a bunch of the Gink's buds. Ginked it up. So I'm sitting there hoping to God that this story that I wrote already doesn't get ginked up because the Gink gets ginked. You know? Gink got got. And it doesn't look Gink got got. And it doesn't look good at the start. Adelise Garcia single on a hard hit ball. Okay. Then he comes back and strikes out Mitch Garver. Wild pitch. Walks Jonah Heim. And it just didn't look right. The fastball command was not there. It was very scattershot. And when he doesn't have that, the slider doesn't play up as much because you can kind of see that pitch down. Mm -hmm. But he does get Nathaniel. So, yeah. So, we've got two runners on with one out. And again, it's still a two-run game. We're, we're, we're starting to sweat it out here. We got Nathaniel Lowe, who had almost homered 
um, in earlier in the game, and it's you know it's, obviously they had a platoon matchup. It's like oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. But faith in Mister Ginkle, he gets low to fly out to left weekly. Josh Young grounds out uh, to Geraldo Perdomo, and it was a we're all good, we're chilling. Jake's story survives to see another day, and uh, you should go read it at Fox Sports. <laughs> Key moment of the game here, though, in this inning is Bruce Bochy pinch running yes. for Jonah Heim, yes. Josh Smith, and then in the top of the ninth, a defensive substitution. Austin Hedges mm-hmm. into the game, batting sixth, playing catch. Right, and so to be clear there, right, how, I mean, when he pinch runs for Heim, that's the tying run with one out. Right. There's first and second. They're down by two. It's the tying run. Fine with it. You're thinking double in the gap. That You're thinking sports. double in the gap for sure. But you're also thinking Jonah Himes' spot isn't necessarily going to come up again. Right. We're not as worried about that. <laughs> or so we thought. Anyway, we go to the top of the ninth. Here comes Austin Hedges for his postseason debut with the Texas Rangers. Now, Austin Hedges, for everyone who is new to Austin Hedges, Elite defensive catcher. Yeah. Like the it, best receiver and game caller yes. in the world right now. It is Jeff Mathis. Yes. His framing metrics, right he was like, and, and and framing numbers are in some ways a counting stat because you, you can collect framing runs over the course of a season. He was like top three and he played six, 70, yeah. 80 games, right? Like he obviously was playing in Pittsburgh, barely played. He only started like five games, I think, with Texas down the stretch. But his his framing numbers are that good. But anyway, he's the one of the worst hitters of the 21st century. There's actually an argument he is the worst hitter of the 21st century alongside Jeff Mathis. And now he is in the lineup. Okay? So let's remember that. Evan Longoria strikes out. Here comes Will Smith. Now, I was impressed by Gray and Dane Dunning. I was like, oh, Will Smith. Not as much. <laughs> Not as impressed. Uh, Corbin Carroll lines one to right. With two outs. And I will say if there was one thing that this game was missing, it was like a holy shit defensive play. This wasn't quite that. Um, However, I will qualify it as a key moment of the game because if Carroll doubles or something or triples, who knows if the ball gets by Adolis and you have Marte up again, batting right-handed against Will Smith, like there's versions of this where the the D-backs are able to add on, but Adolis Garcia, one of the best defensive right fielders, makes the play. Will Smith respectfully stinks. Yeah. And so he, he might be about to win his third uh, ring in three World years Series. with three different He's teams. He's a winner. Amazing. Happy for him, but not good right don't now. Don't need to see him pitching anymore. <laughs> He's the Robert Horry of MLB. <laughs> Although Robert Horry made some shots. Yeah, yeah he, he made some shots. Yeah. Yeah. Um, every time another Rangers reliever not named Jose LeClerc or Josh Spores came out of the pen. I was like, oh, right. Like they have this dude. Yeah. Yeah. We, we didn't even touch on some of these other. We we did end up talking about Miguel Castro, which we'll get to in a second. But there are more guys down there than than we're really considering. And yes, we we, we saw them all uh, on display here. So now we go to the. But OK, so, you know, Garcia makes that catch and the D-Max will have a two run lead going to the bottom of the ninth. And now it's time for Paul That'll Seawall. That'll be more than enough. That'll be more than enough. Don't you worry your little head. Uh, but you know what? You know when it's not enough, Jake? When, when? you walk Leody Tavares to Can't lead off the inning. Can't walk the nine hitter. Walking the nine hitter 
Now, is it as bad as, you know, walking or repeatedly putting Martin Maldonado on base? No. But when you consider the top of this lineup, it is, like with Houston, absolutely devastating. And this is after four straight balls. And we think about often, I think, the mentality, like the, the mental game of, oh, don't walk him. This guy's on deck. This guy's coming up. Often works in reverse, right? Now I'm actually more likely to walk you because I'm so terrified of if I do walk you. So this happens to me when I coach 10U baseball all the time. At that level of the sport, there are hitters at the bottom of lineups who are just automatic outs. Oh, yeah. yeah. Probably more than the bottom of the lineups at that age. Oh, my God. Like kids who cannot swing a bat. Kids who are like falling down. They don't know what direction to run. And we're at an age where there is a gap. Like I got some dudes now, right? And other teams will have some dinky kids. Mm -hmm. And so, but you don't want to go up to the mound and be like, yo, this kid (laughs) sucks. Like make sure you throw him strikes. It's not. But that's the thing. The feeling of can't walk this guy seems to exponentially increase the likeliness that you are going to walk that guy. <laughs> and so <laughs> Paul Seawald, who has essentially been nearly flawless in this postseason, certainly unscored upon. Ginkle got a scare. He gets through his scoreless outing. Paul Seawald walks Leody Tavares, strikes out Marcus Semien. The nightmare for Marcus Semien continues. I think at this point it made him 0 for 5. Uh, in this game on three pitches. I mean, it wasn't even just non-competitive for Marcus Semyon. But hey, you still got Corey Seager coming up with a runner on base. When we talk about things that cannot happen, Jordan, <laughs> walking the nine-hitter is bad. But the pitch call to Corey Seager here... I'm going to push back is, on this a little bit, but tell me what happens. Uh, fastball up in the zone, first pitch, Paul Sewell, 94 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. I know it's an invisible... Uh, Corey Seager saw it, and uh, sure then it was a souvenir. Was not tricked. Was not fooled. Uh, one thirteen off the bat. This was the highest pitch Seawald had allowed a homer on in two years. But we're talking about Corey Seager, and what have we seen Corey Seager it do doesn't matter. the whole time? Is get on top of the baseball, especially when it is only ninety four. He's one of the best hitters on earth. You cannot like that. Is why I do agree with you. Is that Yes, this pitch has worked against 98% of hitters for the last three seasons. That is a fact. That is why he's gotten here. However, this is the terrifying part of having Paul Seawald as your closer. God bless him. I love him dearly. I'm rooting for him for the rest of the series, of course, and I have been. But this is sometimes you face a guy where it's like, I can see it, and now I can hit it over the fence because it is 94. And Corey Seager, of all people, is obviously going to be able to do that. Paul Seawald pitching to his strength is a good thing 99% of the time. Corey Seager mashes fastballs up, mashes early in counts. And for that pitch call to be there is so bad. And I, I like, there's no way that the scouting report didn't say that. Right. And so there's some so sort I, of miscommunication Wald, going on. Is this Moreno? Is this Strom? I don't know. Right. I think I don't think it's Strom. I think it's a Moreno Seawald combo mm-hmm. here. Yeah. There's no way like, you know, uh, Strom's like first pitch up, 
Yeah. But that's the thing, though. Like, this is such a philosophical, eternal question of pitchers versus hitters at the highest level of baseball is, am I pitching to my strengths or am I pitching to their weaknesses? And ultimately, it's a combination of stubbornness. It's a combination of confidence. But in these spots, like when when it is that, when the margins of error of the guy that can obviously tie the game with one swing, yeah, it's it's fairly inexcusable. I, I totally agree with you uh, on that. And it was just like instant, right? I mean, the call from Joe Davis, he could tie the game with one swing, bam, like half a second later was perfect. I mean, everything about it, of course, is the most amped up we've seen Seager uh imaginable and it was yeah everything about it and and it, it sucks but yeah that's 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 how it goes when it when it doesn't work for, for paul Corey seager about as, as much emotion as you'll ever see from him rips it screams runs around the bases and then by the time he gets back to home back all business all, all business yeah you'll be stunned to hear jake that Derek jeter after the game actually called him his favorite player because i think it was because he likes the way he goes about his business i was like no way. That <laughs> is the most predictable thing I've ever heard. Yes, I know. And I absolutely hate it. I know. Uh, right there with you. Okay, anyway. Evan Carter comes up. Evan Carter's like, holy shit, Evan Carter. Now he's facing a righty. Well, can we? But Evan Carter. One second. One second. Yeah. One second. Corey Seager. Yeah. Oh, oh <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we, we, we do. We should probably linger on this home run a little bit longer. Yeah. Like, Corey Seager <laughs> is a very subdued individual. Okay, that has become its own thing in a lot of ways. What a player. What an unbelievable hitter. The just a he is dangerous at the plate. He's formidable. He's horrifying. And when he gets his pitch, he does not miss it. Yeah, he is remarkable. He has proven himself now. The bis we we talked about how his like postseason numbers were actually more underwhelming than you think. Mm -hmm. Or at least like but man. lopsided because it was yeah. skewed by 2020 and the rest of it was a little underwhelming until this year. He is upper echelon, top level. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of just talking about that, that, oh, you hear that, oh, he doesn't miss his pitch when he gets it. But that is what makes him unique. The aggression without chasing is so special. And honestly, like this is a difference between him and a guy like Soto. Soto doesn't chase either, but Soto watches a lot of pitches go right down, right past him because he's looking for truly the perfect one. Whereas Seager, because his swing is so perfect and he knows exactly what he can do with anything in every part of the zone, he's never letting these pitches go by. He is going to go for it if you give him anything in this range and he's just perfected that to such an impressive degree on top of not chasing bad pitches. So he is right. so special. Absolutely one of the best hitters in the world. Uh, and now it's a tie game. Holy shit, it's a tie game. Evan Carter comes up. Still got two more outs to get, and he's got to face uh, Evan Carter and Adelis Garcia. And Evan Carter, again, a good example, and now he has the platoon matchup, and Evan Carter's awesome, and he's been amazing, but Evan Carter has not seen Paul Seawald, so he was not exactly as prepared or in this sense. Um, so he strikes out, and then Adelis Garcia gets hit by a pitch. And if we've seen anything in this postseason, we don't want to piss him off. Now, it did hit him like pretty much square in the hand, and there was some concerns at the at the time. On first glance, I thought it was the elbow. It hits him. I mean, it hit him in the hand. Like, it, that was not just a, a grazing blow. Now, Seawald's throwing 93, not 99, but still, like, it looked like it hurt. He goes to first, and then Dolores Garcia steals second base with Mitch Garver at the plate and Austin Hedges on deck. 
What was your takeaway? Now, everyone, when he steals, of course, stealing a base after being hit by a pitch is like one of the coolest things you can do in baseball. So everyone's going crazy. Oh, oh Dolly's what a guy. But then the reality sets in. You're just like, what? What? That was, why would you do that? That was a terrible idea. <laughs> so what was your sense on this play? Oh, I totally didn't see it either. Like, I was like, that's a crazy steal. Garcia gets hit, steals again. He, he loves, he's a, what a player. So uh, Seawald intentionally walks Mitch Garver, and that brings up Austin Hedges and his Swiss cheese baseball bat to the dish. I mean, I, like, it, this at bat went, every single person could have predicted how this at bat went. You can imagine the sigh of relief from Seawald when Hedges comes up because you could, because the base was open, because Garcia stole and you could walk Garver, where you just say, yeah, I'm just going to throw three sweepers and he hasn't hit in weeks, obviously. And even when he was hitting, he wasn't hitting. So I just got to throw three sweepers and he has no chance. He swings at all three, inning over. Now for those questioning, why don't you pinch hit for Austin Hedges here? We have Robbie Grossman, we have Travis Jankowski on the bench. And I think that's a fair question. However, as we know, they only have two catchers. They have Mitch Garver, who they could have burned the DH, but it seemed like with extras, with the game tied, if they're losing, no 0% chance Hedges is hitting. But with the game already tied, it seems like Bochy was willing to go to extra innings instead of uh, burning the DH here uh, and then maybe being in a really ugly spot later on in the game. So it seemed kind of nuts, but at the same time, I sort of understood. Of course, it worked out. There's a version of this game where we are really talking about that at bat even more and not just laughing at it. But that was not the case. And it's tough to know the impact of leaving Hedges in the game. You kind of you, you don't see it, but you see it because in comes new character, introducing a new character in the top of the 10th. Jose Leclerc comes out of the Rangers bullpen and proceeds to shred through the Diamondbacks offense, striking out, uh, sorry, uh, Cattell Marte line out, Gabriel Moreno strike out, Christian Walker flies out. Boom, boom, boom. I'm going to just skip past the bottom of the 10th for a second. And then he gets Pham, Guriel, and Thomas in the top of the 11th. Yeah. I mean, okay. two, six outs. Yeah. Incredible. Easiest six outs he's gotten all postseason, right? I mean, by yeah. far. Effortless. Um, he looked fantastic. But in the bottom of the 10th, remember, folks, there ain't no ghost runner anymore. We got to actually get the guy to come all the way around from home plate. He has to go to first and then to second and then to third and mm. then still all the way another 90 feet to home in order to score yes. in the in extra innings. These entitled ball Seems players like a lot to think ask, they're born on honestly. second base. <laughs> right, exactly. Anyway, Kyle Nelson. Okay, Kyle Nelson, not Andrew Saul Frank, comes in for the bottom of the order, walks Nathaniel Lowe, young grounds into a double play. This I mean, this was a – what a turn. Holy shit. From Perdomo to Marte to Walker here. This was an incredible defensive play that no one will ever remember. Leone Tavares walks again, and you're like, oh, my God, how are they making the same mistake? And when Semyon singles, and here comes Corey Seager, you're like, holy shit, they actually are going to let this happen again. But no, Corey Seager grounds out. 4-3. It was a 2-0 count. 2-0. My thought was – my thought was they're going to walk Seager and then they're going to walk Carter and that's going to be the game. Mm, interesting because you think Carter wouldn't chase. But look at the pitches that Kyle Nelson threw to Corey Seager. That's how you do it. Easier said than done, of course. And it was left on left, of course. But that slider, he was able to get it in the zone enough to where Seager wanted to swing at it, but he couldn't do shit with it. And he grounds out to second. Very impressive. 
from Kyle Nelson. Honestly, no one will remember. As you mentioned, one, two, three in the top of the 11th. And now it's time for the bottom of the 11th. And Evan Carter comes up and Kyle Nelson's still in the game because, duh, Evan Carter can't hit left-handed pitching. And this is when it's like, really? Robbie Grossman, they cut to Robbie Grossman. <laughs> they're like, they cut to Robbie Grossman on the broadcast and he's just kind of looking there like, well, if I'm not hitting here, like, I'm probably never going to hit this series. <laughs> like, he's like, why am I, I here? That's honestly how I felt. I was like, if, I'm not, if he's not hitting here, he's not going to hit. So he flies out to right. And in comes Miguel Castro, a man with disgusting stuff, a tall boy, a person whose uh, praises I sung on this podcast during our preview because I think his shit is absolutely awesome. But he has not pitched in high leverage so far this postseason for a reason, a reason that he proved on Friday night. Yes, and he gets he gets it to 2-1. He gets a strike, uh, a swinging strike on the changeup. But ultimately, the first fastball that he threw to Adolis Garcia, Moreno was set up a little bit more up and in, not like bust him in and let's hit him with another pitch, but it was seemed like he wanted it more up than down. But as we know, it hasn't really mattered where the ball has been because he has been hitting everything. But this was truly a nitro zone pitch for Adolis Garcia, 97 middle of the plate down, and he just rips it to right right field. I mean, now, but because of the angle and because it's an opposite field home, you know, swing and everything, like, it was not as obvious. And this is what you wrote about it, Fox, in your recap. Most of the other home runs that he's hit this, basically all of them, even the ones that were like moonshots that, you know, just got over the fence, he has taken his sweet time getting to first base, as he should. Before last night, Garcia had hit seven postseason homers and he had pimped eight postseason homers <laughs> he had a laser beam double off the wall That's in houston true. that he just or sorry single that he just walked to first base because yep. he thought it was gone and in that evened out those numbers evened out because he did not he did not soak this one up i mean he the angle you're right the launch angle of it was low enough that he had to just you know give it a courtesy jog for like four steps but down the line. He hit it so hard before it went out. That it got out pretty quickly. Exactly. Um, Carroll goes back, leaps up, not quite that close. And uh holy shit. He <laughs> as if he hadn't already like that's the thing. Like if Adolis Garcia goes 0 for 25 in this World Series, but the Rangers win, he's still a legend. Everybody yep. remembers him as a huge part of the face of this team and all these things, right? Like that would have happened anyway. But instead, he's like, nah, I got you. I actually can somehow do even something cooler than I already have done in my previous uh, seven postseason home runs. Uh, and he walks off game one of the World Series, the first game one walk-off homer since Kirk Gibson. Ever heard of him? Uh, Dolores Garcia was not limping around the bases this time. He was confidently strolling, jogging, sprinting at one point because uh, the Rangers were waiting at home plate to say, oh my God, he is that dude. The first World Series walk-off home run since actual World Series walk-off home run is it is it Muncie? Max Muncie, Muncie off of Nate Evaldi. Okay, it is Muncie. Wow. Okay, so now that was you know that was game three. Uh, but yeah, man, I was thinking about Evaldi, and when the game went to extra innings, I was like, man, like it's too bad they don't have Evaldi to like go six innings. Like that would be can't bring him back in the game, you know, little league style. Um, but wow, that's that's wild. How about that? 
So I came on this podcast yesterday and talked about Adelise Garcia, Mm -hmm. how I thought that he was just swinging at everything and if the Diamondbacks executed, they could get him out. And I was incredibly wrong. After the first couple of at-bats last night where he wasn't chasing at pitches that you usually expect him to chase at, it was not a ran into a couple, but baseball's in the ALCS. Yes, this gentleman is locked the hell in. And I texted or I slacked you a message <laughs> like right before he came to the plate where I was like, hey, by the way, I was wrong. Yeah. He's locked in. Yeah. Pow. Yeah. Gone. Game yeah, over. no. And, and, and you're so right. And not just actually finally drawing a walk, but being select. Because again, even when it was getting the three ball counts, like he was still executing fouling pitches off or attacking at pitches that he could do something with. And ultimately, like, again, this is why the Rangers are, are here, because you have these guys in these lineup that are just an absolute pain in the ass to pitch you. And this is with Marcus Semyon looking like garbage. But because Evan Carter doesn't chase, because Corey Seager is Corey Seager, because Adolis Garcia is hitting everything, it's just a mess. And because Garber had generally been productive, um, I know he had the walk tonight, but I don't know. I, I don't really know what, what the best way to handle this is. I think ultimately... A big part of this game, like credit to the 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 Rangers bullpen, right? Like the Diamondbacks were not able to add on, and that's been they didn't score more than six runs in any of the games against the Phillies, and they didn't need to. But this was an example where that offense did just go quiet too much, to where you're just giving you're just giving the Rangers enough time to have a big swing like that. And credit to the Diamondbacks, like I was still super impressed with a, with ninety three percent of this performance, truly, um, and I still think they have a shot in the series. But that's that is, you know, when you're dealing with the star level talent there, as we kind of saw again when we talked about like with game five of the NLCS, ultimately, like the Rangers are the guys that have those guys that can just change it and win it with one or two swings. And not that Arizona doesn't, but it's just a smaller margin for error. Arizona's plan worked perfectly, right? Mm-hmm. They had Paul Sewald on the mound with a two run lead, yeah. needing three outs. It went to script. And they would take it that went to script. tonight yeah. in game two if they got it. Yep. It, it totally went to script. And, it didn't work, and, and that was the other thing. You know, once once Seawall blows it, it's one of those things where, what do you do? Because even if you get it to extras, we haven't seen this situation before. So I didn't know who was going to come in. And credit to Kyle Nelson for showing up in that spot, but Miguel Castro, uh, no such luck. Uh, all right, Jake, let's end this podcast here. We got another game tonight. It'll be Jordan Montgomery against Merrill Kelly. And uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I, I don't know how you topped that. Again, I, it was essentially a perfect baseball game. But I hope you enjoyed. I will continue to enjoy watching on TV. But we hope you all uh, enjoyed this recap and your patience for it. Uh, we wanted to definitely let Jake sleep in a little bit because we were writing until 3 a.m. And that is a p- part of the job, which uh, no one is going to listen to you complain about. But also, I think you could probably understand that if right, trying to write a game like that is pretty difficult <laughs> when you have the secrets of events that we saw. Uh, but all that said, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Jake, for waking up and recording with me. Thank you to Isabella Joseph and Chris Tyler for producing. We appreciate it doing these weekend pods and we'll be back tomorrow with another episode of baseball barbacast thank you all so much serious xm podcasts